The Coram Deo Church community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you are about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is from John chapter 11, verses 45 through chapter 12, verse 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Then the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there. They came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. My name is Trevor. I'm the student ministry director here, and I'm thankful for the opportunity to be continuing in our Gospel of John series with all of you this morning. 
I'll be preaching from John chapters 11 and 12. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there with me now. If you don't have a Bible, this passage is on page 844 of a Bible under a seat near you. Uh, 2021 was a big year for my family. We moved into a new home. My son started kindergarten. My daughter turned four and finally started sleeping through the night uh, with the help of what we call nighttime candy called melatonin. (laughs) Kindergarten and sleeping are new experiences for our family, but uh, moving is not. We've moved four times in the last five years, and I've noticed that it doesn't really matter what the circumstances are, and it doesn't really matter what neighborhood we're moving into. Neighbors typically respond to somebody new in the neighborhood in some pretty predictable ways. Uh, Perhaps if you've recently moved, you'll see some of these responses reflected in your own experience. And perhaps if you've recently had new neighbors, you'll see some of these responses reflected in your own behavior. So uh, the first response that I often see is what I would call the Walmart greeter response. This is usually the first person to welcome you to the neighborhood. They're friendly and they're cheerful, but they also make it clear that they're not interested in talking to you ever again. The conversation usually goes something like this. Say, okay, well, so nice to meet you. Welcome to the neighborhood. If you ever need anything and none of the other neighbors are around to help you, feel free to come over. We're right next door. Uh, Just don't come over on an evening or a weekend. Otherwise, we're here for you. Have a nice life. Uh, Then the second response that I often see from neighbors usually comes from somebody who's been in the neighborhood for 10 years or more. Uh, And it's what I would call the neighborhood almanac. This is the person who knows everything about everyone and everything, and they're very happy to share all of their knowledge free of charge. Uh, And then the third response that I often see is the neighbor who plays hard to get. This is the neighbor who every time you walk across the street to introduce yourself, conveniently preoccupies himself with anything. It doesn't really matter what it is, like getting into their car, going into the house, just like using their hands to sweep up the leaves next to them, whatever they have to do to pretend like they didn't see you. They usually turn out being pretty good neighbors. It just takes them a little while to warm up to you. Uh, But there's something about a new family in a neighborhood that disrupts the flow of everyday life and kind of disorients the neighbors a little bit. And so each neighbor begins to respond in a different way. Uh, We see something similar happening in our text this morning. Jesus is out doing ministry with his disciples when his friend Lazarus dies. They put him in a tomb. He shows up at the funeral, and then he brings uh, uh, Lazarus back to life. As you can imagine, that creates a little bit of commotion among the neighbors, and all of the neighbors begin to respond to Jesus. Some with excitement, some with wonder and curiosity, and some with anger. Uh, because a sign like this just demands a response. The neighbors have to respond to Jesus. Perhaps you've been exploring Christianity for some time now. You've come to our Gospel of John series because you've heard about Jesus and you're trying to make sense of him for yourself. And that's a good thing. We're glad you're here. But at some point, you have to respond to Jesus. Or perhaps you're familiar with the Christian story. You know all about Jesus and you have a degree of respect for him. But there's a big difference between respecting Jesus and responding to Jesus. And at some point, you're going to have to respond to Jesus as well. His claims are just too bold. His life and ministry are too impactful. His death and resurrection are too controversial and too polarizing to ignore. 
And what this text shows us this morning is that you can kill him or crown him, but you cannot ignore him. You must respond to Jesus. We're going to meet four different characters throughout our text this morning, and in each one of those characters, we're going to see a different way that we can respond to Jesus. Uh, The first way is that you can reject him. The second, you can worship him. Third, you can use him. And fourth, you can testify to him. Uh, So let's begin by looking at that first way to respond to Jesus. Look with me at John chapter 11, verse 47. So, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. So from that day on, They made plans to put him to death. Over the course of about a three-year period of time, Jesus' followers go from a handful of about 12 to thousands of people who are now believing in him. He's grown in such popularity that he's become a threat to the religious leaders, and they're in a bit of a state of emergency trying to figure out what to do about it. Caiaphas doesn't listen to this very long, and he comes up with a very pragmatic solution. Put Jesus to death. If he's that much of a problem, why don't you just get rid of him? Seems simple enough. Uh, At face value, it seems like the religious leaders are concerned for the well-being of the people. But look with me closer at verse 49. It says, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Commenting on this phrase, D.A. Carson says, The peculiar way this is worded shows they are above all else afraid that the Romans will come and take away from them the temple and nation. They are prompted less by dispassionate concern for the well-being of the nation than for their own positions of power and prestige. And so the authorities choose to reject Jesus because he's become a threat to them. Now, if you were to follow the religious leader's response to Jesus throughout John's gospel, you would see a unique pattern emerge. At first, all of the religious leaders are curious and confused about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Uh, But it doesn't take long for their curiosity and confusion to turn into reluctant tolerance when Jesus starts claiming to be the Son of God and healing people on the Sabbath. Um, And after that, their reluctant tolerance then becomes Outright rejection, which we see right here in this text. Sadly, this is the same path of unbelief that is common in our day. When I was in college, a friend of mine started going to church with me. He came from a non-religious background, and he knew absolutely nothing about Jesus. Uh, His first experiences of Christianity were beautiful and compelling to him, and so I was hopeful that the Lord was going to do a meaningful work in his life. Uh, He was really intrigued by the social impact of Jesus' life and ministry on human history. He really appreciated the warm welcome that he received on Sunday mornings and in small groups. And uh, he was 
baffled, but also really interested in learning about Christ's claims about himself. All was going well. He attended for well over a year, and I thought that he was on his way to becoming a Christian. And then one day, he just stopped showing up. So I called to find out what was going on with him, and he told me that he wouldn't be coming back because he realized that believing in Jesus meant submitting his life to Jesus. And if he had to choose between his political, religious, and social views and Jesus, then he was going to reject Christ, plain and simple. It's not hard to see where my friend is coming from. Uh, As someone who had no religious background, it made sense to him to reject Jesus. Believing in Jesus for him meant a reorientation of his entire life. And it was going to be costly for him personally, socially, and maybe politically. Um, So he made the logical decision in his mind to reject Jesus. And if you're here this morning and that describes you, I just want to say this morning, uh, it's worth it. Believing in Jesus does come with a cost. Believing in Jesus does mean reorienting your whole life around him. And that can be scary, and that can be hard, and that can be really disorienting, but it's worth it. Believing in Jesus is absolutely 100% worth whatever it's going to cost you to take that step. So please hear me out this morning. Listen to this text and hear the Lord inviting you to move beyond rejection to acceptance. Uh, But rejecting Jesus isn't something that uh, non-Christians do only. It's also something that Christians do as well. When I refuse to forgive somebody who's wronged me, I'm rejecting Jesus. When I refuse to submit to God's will for my life, even though it's different than the story I would write for myself, I'm rejecting Jesus. When I use my words to tear somebody down, when the Bible tells me to build them up, I'm rejecting Jesus. See, any area of your life that is not submitted to Jesus is an area of your life where you're rejecting him. Those are a couple of the areas in my own life where I'm prone to do that. But where in your life are you prone to reject Jesus? Before we move on, I want you to listen to John's observations about this situation in verse 51. It says, Caiaphas did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not only for the nation, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Uh, John 11.55 tells us that these events are taking place during the Passover, an annual religious celebration in which the Jews would sacrifice a lamb in remembrance of what God did to rescue them out of slavery to the Egyptians during the time of the Exodus. And as high priest, Caiaphas would be the one who is responsible for making sacrifices on behalf of the people. So Caiaphas doesn't know this, but he's about to make the most important sacrifice he's ever made— during one of the most important days in the Jewish calendar. In Leslie Newbigin's words, Caiaphas does not know that the whole ritual apparatus of which he is the center is but a sign pointing to the one true sacrifice, which alone can take away not only the sin of Israel, but the sin of the whole world. In other words, Jesus becomes a true and better lamb that Caiaphas uses to make a true and better sacrifice to bring about a true and better salvation. 
Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb, has been slaughtered. And now through Jesus, God invites all people to come to him, not just the Jews. And that's good news, amen? Amen. And it's news that demands a response. Uh, You can reject him like the Pharisees, or you can worship him like Mary. So the council decides that they're going to put a warrant out for Jesus' arrest. Jesus goes into the witness protection program, disappears into the wilderness, and then he shows up one week later in Bethany for a gathering in his honor. Uh, It says in verse 2, So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Uh, So what do you do when your friend or your brother is brought back from the dead? Well, apparently, you throw a party, right? You go to Applebee's and they're like, hey, what are we celebrating today? A special occasion, a birthday, an anniversary? Like, no, we're celebrating a resurrection, right? So the whole town is gathered to stand amazed at Jesus and what he's done. And where's Mary? She's at Jesus' feet. And what's she doing? She's anointing his feet with perfume. Commentators note that the perfume that Mary is using to anoint Jesus' feet is worth about the same amount as a year's wages. So Mary's at Jesus' feet pouring this expensive ointment on his feet uh, to show how much she is devoted to him, how much she is grateful for him, and how precious and valuable that he has become to her. She's at his feet giving him her reverent worship. Think with me for a moment about how important Mary's response is in our day. Every year, millions of people go to places like the Grand Canyon and the Grand Tetons and the Redwood Forest. Millions of people go to sporting events every week. We uh, look after our celebrities. We try to get autographs from our favorite sports heroes. And why? Why do we do that? Because we were made for wonder and worship. Deep down in every single one of us is a longing to be enchanted by something. But in a world of authenticity and expressive individualism, we're told that the person we're supposed to be most enchanted with is ourselves. According to researchers David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons, 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. 86% believe that you should pursue things that you desire most. And 91% believe that the key to finding happiness is to look within yourself. And that's a compelling narrative. There's something really intriguing about the possibility of making life all about you. Your happiness, your experiences, your dreams and desires. Uh, it's something, there's something about that that speaks to us that we actually long to pursue. And it is a compelling narrative. But it's also an empty one. Thaddeus Williams, a professor at Biola University, summarizes the problem with this narrative well. He says, the problem with the cult of self-worship is this. When we try to be our own sources of truth, we slowly drive ourselves crazy. When we try to be our own sources of satisfaction, we become miserable wrecks. When we become our own standard of goodness and justice, we become obnoxiously self-righteous. When we seek self-glorification, 
we become more inglorious. Why? It's simple. We're not God. We were never meant to be defined by, satisfied in, and captivated by ourselves. We were made to revere someone infinitely more interesting and awesome than we are. We become most truly and freely ourselves in a state of self-forgetful reverence. In August of 2012, my brother and I took a little weekend trip up to Boston, Massachusetts. Neither of us had been there before. We heard that it was a beautiful place to visit that time of year, and we thought it'd be fun to go see some of the historic sites that we had only read about in our history books. And so we booked a flight at random, and we flew up there over a weekend. And on the first day, we were walking through a park in uh, downtown Boston when we came across this, a red brick road starting in the center of the park and working its way out into the city. We had no idea what it was. We had no idea where it went, but we thought to ourselves, well, it worked for Dorothy. So we decided to follow it. And so we followed the uh, red brick road out of the park and into the city. Well, it turns out that that red brick road is called the Freedom Trail. It's a two and a half mile trail that starts in Boston Commons, the Memorial Park of Boston. And it takes you all the way through all the historic sites of the city of Boston uh, up to Bunker Hill in Cambridge. It's uh, one of the sites of the Revolutionary War battles. And so we followed this trail for like four or five, maybe even six hours for a really long time. Um, And we walked past some really cool places like uh, Benjamin Franklin's grave, the pub where Sam Adams and other revolutionaries planned the Revolutionary War, and the Old North Church where Paul Revere hung the lanterns on his famous midnight ride. Uh, When we got done, we stopped for a little rest here at Harvard University. The picture that you're looking at right there is called Harvard Yard, and it's a massive green space. That's probably like two or three football fields in size. It's nestled right in the middle of some really beautiful ancient trees uh, and, and some ancient university buildings on one of the oldest college campuses in America. Uh, so we were tired, and we thought it'd be fun to just sit down and rest. It was a perfect day. It wasn't too hot. It wasn't too cold. The wind was blowing uh, Nicely. Uh, There were enough people there to make it entertaining, but not overwhelming. And so we just sat down and kind of took a few minutes to enjoy the scenery. Uh, Well, after about 10 minutes, one of us looked at the other and said, uh, asked what time it was. Uh, It turns out that we hadn't been sitting there for 10 minutes. We'd been sitting there for like two or three hours. And the thing that made that moment so beautiful is that we were so overcome with a reverent sense of awe of where we were and what we were experiencing that we totally forgot all about ourselves. Uh, That moment was so meaningful to me that I now refer to life's most satisfying moments as Harvard Yard moments. Think about the Harvard Yard moments in your life. Those moments of reverent self-forgetfulness that bring you peace of mind and deep satisfaction. Uh, For some of you, it might be a favorite vacation spot. For others, it might be a deer stand in the woods somewhere. Uh, Maybe it's a particular person who every time you're with them, you forget where you're at and what you're doing because you're so caught up in the conversation. Or maybe it's the memory of a particular event, like a wedding or an anniversary or a birthday. 
Uh, Whatever it is, that's the kind of response that John is trying to provoke in us as his readers. Everything that John has written in his gospel is there to help us see the beauty and worth of Jesus so that we'll respond to who he is and what he's done with reverent, self-forgetful awe. And so, if you're at a place in life where self-worship has become empty, the invitation for you this morning is to respond to Jesus in reverent, self-forgetful worship. So you can reject Jesus like the Pharisees, or you can worship him like Mary. Now let's look at the third way that you can respond to him this morning. In verse 5, Judas scoffs at Mary's devotion, saying, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? John, narrating about the response, says, He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. How many of you guys know somebody who only hangs out with you when they need something from you? So I'm me and one other person over here. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's the kind of person who's not actually interested in you. They're only interested in what you can do for them. Well, that's Judas. Judas is the treasurer of Jesus' ministry, and he's helping himself to the money bag. He acts like he's concerned for the poor, but he's actually just concerned for himself. He's not interested in worshiping Jesus. He's only one of Jesus' disciples because he wants to use Jesus. Uh, I actually had something similar happen to me when I was in high school uh, as a sophomore at Millard North. I don't know how they do lunch anymore, but back then your lunch account used to be tied to your student ID. And it was pretty common for students who didn't have money on their account to ask somebody else to buy them lunch. You guys can see where this is going, right? Uh, So there was a guy that I used to hang out with. We spent time together every day at school. We ate lunch together. I thought we were friends, and uh, he needed money for the day. So he asked if I would buy him lunch, and I kindly did so. We went through the line. We bought our food. We sat down. We had a good time and went about our day. Well, the next day when I went through the line, the lunch lady told me I had to put all of my food back because I didn't have enough money on my account. That was odd because my mom had just loaded my account with a week's worth of money the day before. And so my parents worked with the administration to set up a kind of sting operation. They gave me a new account number and they turned the system to flag anybody who went through the line using my old account. Uh, It was actually a really fun experience, and I waited with eager anticipation for like three days trying to figure out who's it going to be and how are we going to catch them. Well, the day after that, somebody went through the line trying to use my account. The system flagged them, and there were a group of administrators standing behind the wall who came out to bust this dude like it was an episode of Coughs. Uh, It was pretty amazing. I felt so vindicated. Uh, But it just so happened to be the guy that I bought lunch for two days before. And it turns out that he not only used my account to buy himself lunch, he used my account to buy all of his buddies lunch too. So I thought this dude was my friend, and he was really just using me to get free lunch. Uh, Now, I doubt that any of you are helping yourselves to the offering box on your way out or embezzling money from a ministry here at Cormdale. If you are, we have this thing called prayer at the end of the service. You're welcome to come forward and confess. (laughs) But there's a secret temptation in each one of us to use Jesus like Judas does. It's just that we don't call it theft. We call it consumerism. Consumerism is that subtle temptation that lurks inside each and every one of us to use Jesus in the church, not because we love him, 
but because we love ourselves. Not because of what we can contribute, but because of what we can get. We do this when we want the blessings of Christianity without obedience to Jesus. We do this when we want the benefits of community without accountability. We do this when we're content to receive, but we never get to a place where we're willing to give. We may not be like Judas, but there is a subtle temptation in every single one of us, myself included, to use Jesus for our own purposes. In what area of your life might you be prone to use Jesus? So you can reject Jesus, you can worship Jesus, and you can use Jesus. Those are the first three ways that you can uh, respond to him this morning. Now let's look at a fourth. Uh, look at John chapter 12, verse 9. It says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, when he had, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, every once in a while, I find myself doing things in life that I would otherwise not do simply because somebody else that I know is really excited about it. Um, that's what happened to me with the musical Hamilton, at least. Uh, back in 2017, my sister-in-law and my brother visited my wife and I while we were living in St. Louis, Missouri for a hot minute, uh, and she was really excited about the Hamilton musical, so she played the soundtrack for me, uh, and I didn't really know what I should think. As a college football player, I had never seen a musical before, and the thought of mixing like hip-hop and history just seemed really strange, uh, so you could say that I was a skeptic. Uh, but my sister-in-law's enthusiasm experience convinced me that I needed to give it a try before I rejected Hamilton altogether. Uh, so when it finally came out on Disney+, Plus, I watched it with my wife and while my children were in bed, and a week later, I watched it all by myself on Disney+, Plus again, while my wife was out of town visiting her family. I liked it so much that we went and bought tickets so we could go see it when it came here to town. And now I'm a believer, right? <laughs> I still don't know if I like musicals, but I definitely like that one. And the only reason I gave it a try was on account of my sister-in-law. Had she not had a story to tell me about her experience of Hamilton, I never would have tried this musical by myself. But because she had a good experience and because she shared her story with me, I was inclined to give it a try, and I was totally surprised by how much I liked it. And that's what's happening with Lazarus here. He was dead, and Jesus brought him back to life. We have absolutely no idea what he's telling people, but it's clear that his life is a testimony to the personal work of Jesus. And people from all over the place are believing in Jesus because of Lazarus. Now, you might not be Lazarus, but what I want you to hear this morning is that you have a story to tell too. Ephesians chapter 2 says that you were dead in your sins and transgressions, but God made you alive together with Christ. Don't miss that. Right? You were dead, unresponsive, separated from God, and unable to bring yourself to life. But God, in the riches of his glorious grace, brought you back to life through his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Right? So you have a story to tell. And it's not a boring story. Some people are like, oh man, I grew up in a Christian home. I never did anything wrong. And I became a Christian when I was like six. No, it's so boring. No, it's not. You were dead. You're alive. 
There's nothing boring about that. That's exciting. That's good news. Right? And in an age where you're told to live your truth, the people in your relational networks might not believe what a pastor has to say. They might not believe what the Bible has to say. But they might just believe what you have to say. Right? Because in a world that's obsessed with self-expression, they might be able to disagree with the Bible's teaching. But it's pretty hard to argue with your story. There are people in your life right now who God wants to bring to faith in Jesus through your story. So tell your story. God wants to use you. Um, And if you're not a Christian here this morning, God wants to give you a story. The Bible says that you are currently dead in your sins. You're unable to respond to God. You're numb to the things of God. You have no life in, in, in your soul of yourself. And you need somebody from the outside to jumpstart your heart and to bring you to life. And he wants to do that for you this morning. So if you're, that's you and you are dead in your tomb, hear Jesus call your name and come out of the grave this morning because he wants to give you life. The life and ministry of Jesus demands a response from us. His claims are too bold. The impact of his life and ministry too great. His death and resurrection too controversial. We must respond to Jesus. The Pharisees rejected him. Mary worshipped him. Judas used him. And Lazarus testified to him. How will you respond to Jesus this morning? That's the question that this text puts before us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who raised Lazarus from the dead, the one who is worthy of all worship and wonder, the one who calls to us to respond to him. Lord, as we come before you this morning, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take the things that are written in this text and cause them to come alive in us in a fresh new way. Lord, help us to see the areas in our life where we are rejecting Jesus and using him and give us the grace we need to repent. Lord, help us to see the beauty and worth of Jesus Christ. Cause us to live in reverent self-forgetfulness and send us out on your mission to tell the world our story of what he's done for us. And we're so grateful for your goodness and grace as we respond through communion and worship this morning. Help us to forget ourselves, to forget our circumstances for a moment to be caught up in your presence and your glory like Mary. In Jesus' name, amen.